In our first episode, we surveyed the basic facts surrounding the murder of Dr. Jeffrey McDonald's family on the Fort Bragg military base in North Carolina. And we heard Jeffrey McDonald's own recollection of that terrifying and tragic evening in February 1970. In episode two, we considered and rejected the claim that McDonald's account was too far-fetched to be taken seriously. Having established the fundamental plausibility of McDonald's story, we need next to survey the facts of the case in order to see how well they conform to that story. We can begin by following in the footsteps of the Army investigators who originally worked on the case. This is Matthew Craig Kelly. Welcome back to The Looking Glass. And the wheel of destiny has turned. The survival of peace and freedom will be determined by whether the American people have the moral standard. The great silent majority. Dustin Morgan composed the music and sound design for this episode. Our cast this episode features Chad Danella as Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, Brian Kovalt as Joe McGinnis, Andy Ryder as Errol Morris, Michael Hensley as Captain Hammond Beale, and Josh T. Pearson as Victor Warheide. You can follow us on Facebook at The Looking Glass True Crime Podcast and on Instagram at The Looking Glass underscore podcast. We will be posting season one related documents, photographs, and short essays regularly at both of these accounts. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash the looking glass true crime podcast and on Instagram at the looking glass underscore podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends. We appreciate your support. It took very little time for military authorities to conclude that McDonald's story was a confection. Indeed, within a week of the murders, they advised the FBI to call off the nationwide search then underway for the gang of intruders that had allegedly committed the crime. No such gang existed. The Army's investigators were satisfied. In fact, within hours of the murders, the Provost Marshal at Fort Bragg, Colonel Robert J. Krawanek, told FBI investigators in Fayetteville, point blank, that no civilians had been involved in the crime, and that the case would therefore not fall within the Bureau's jurisdiction. That left only one explanation for the three corpses found at 544 Castle Drive, namely that they'd been the work of the fourth person in the home, the one who'd survived, Jeffrey MacDonald. What made the investigators so confident? Many things. For one, the living quarters in which the crime had occurred didn't look right. The three bedrooms, where the little girls and Colette had been found, were soaked and splattered in blood. And the blue fibers from Jeffrey McDonald's torn pajama top were found all over them, especially in the master bedroom. The living room, by contrast, where McDonald said he'd been attacked, looked relatively undisturbed. The coffee table opposite the couch on which McDonald had supposedly been sleeping had been knocked over, but that was about it. There were no shattered glass, broken china, or scattered houseware. And unlike in the bedrooms, the blue fibers were nowhere to be found in the living room, where MacDonald claimed his pajama top had originally been ripped and repeatedly punctured in his struggle with the intruders. As conspicuous, there was no trace of water or mud in the residence, as there ought to have been if a gang of drug-addled killers had barged in from the rain and rampaged through the apartment. 
Perhaps most puzzling of all, MacDonald had, against all odds, survived the ordeal, despite his wife and children's having been overkilled. Had the homicidal intruders come to their senses once they'd knocked MacDonald unconscious and decided, out of the blue, to spare him the scores of stab wounds they'd inflicted on the necks and torsos of his wife and daughters? After all, nearly all of MacDonald's wounds were superficial, the only exception being a one-inch incision beneath his right nipple, which had penetrated between his ribs and partially collapsed his lung. But both that injury and the wound patterns on the children had something in common. They were consistent with an attacker who understood, in the first case, how to injure himself seriously but not fatally, and in the second, how to quickly and quietly kill a human being. As McGinnis relates, In a report never publicly released, the Fort Bragg Provost Marshal expressed the opinion that the accuracy, similarity, and location of the wounds strongly indicates actions of one individual with expertise on vulnerability, killing as rapidly and mercifully as possible without creating any noise. He added the observation that all the knife wounds were deep and in a relatively small area of the bodies, and that there had been no disfiguring and no sexual molestation, indices which, to him, pointed away from drug-crazed hippies and toward the one man, husband, father, and physician with an interest in surgery, known to have been in the apartment at the time that the murders occurred. In sum, the details of MacDonald's story did not square with the physical evidence in the apartment. Something wasn't right. These facts and others convinced military investigators more or less from the start that MacDonald was lying about the intruders and was thus himself responsible for the murders of his wife and children. In May 1970, they charged him formally and began an Article 32 hearing as a prelude to prosecuting him. MacDonald, by now thoroughly disenchanted with the army, hired a civilian lawyer, Bernard Siegel, to defend him. It was a shrewd decision. Siegel promptly got to work scrutinizing the army's investigation and shortly uncovered a rat's nest of forensic incompetence. If there was one thing Siegel established in the course of the Army's legal proceedings against MacDonald, it was that the handling of the evidence in the case was badly botched. The MPs who first arrived at 544 Castle Drive had no experience with homicides and little knowledge of how to preserve evidence, or even how to secure a crime scene. An unknown number of individuals, some of them civilians, had wandered into and out of the apartment without interference in the minutes after the MPs first arrived traipsing over and tainting God knows how much evidence in the process. The ambulance driver confessed to having stolen McDonald's wallet from the scene. The army had failed to promptly establish roadblocks in order to look for the intruders McDonald had described, and investigators claimed that McDonald's story failed the smell test, failed the smell test. This was most dramatically illustrated when the presiding judge at the Article 32 hearing, Colonel Warren Rock, tired of prosecutors' insistence that the kicked-over coffee table had in fact been carefully set on its side by MacDonald in an act of staging, a conclusion they reached after themselves kicking the table over repeatedly, only to watch it capsize in every instance, never stopping on its side. MacDonald had obviously set the table on its side, thinking it would appear as if there had been a struggle in the room, prosecutors insisted. Had there actually been a struggle, the table would have flipped completely over. Rock's suspicions on this point were such that he finally decided to test it for himself. 
he headed one afternoon over to 544 Castle Drive, where the crime scene had, by then, been sealed. He gave the table a kick, and lo and behold, it landed on its side. The episode seemed to encapsulate the brittle quality of the Army's case against the captain. Indeed, the prosecution of MacDonald was so feeble that it never graduated to a court-martial, as almost all Article 32 hearings did. Colonel Rock instead dismissed the case. But he went further than that, not merely declaring MacDonald not guilty, but proclaiming him innocent. As Rock stated in his October 1970 findings, all charges and specifications against Captain Jeffrey R. MacDonald should be dismissed because the matters set forth in all charges and specifications are not true. As we will shortly see, MacDonald's innocent legal status was not to last. But for many of those close to the Article 32 hearing, Rock's judgment was sound. Hammond Beale, Rock's advisor on the case, would later comment to Errol Morris. It's hard to believe. McDonald lost his wife, both kids, and then ends up losing his license and freedom forever. Pretty bad for something he didn't do. You believe that McDonald is innocent? Morris asked, apparently surprised. Oh, I know he's innocent, Beale replied. I sat through the Article 32 for part of a year and was Colonel Rock's legal advisor to rule on all legal issues that came up. I saw every piece of evidence the government had, and hell, any time they're arguing that the motive behind killing everybody was because the youngest kid wet the bed? Give me a break. Give me a break. Give me a break. Oh yes, if the most damning piece of evidence against MacDonald was his having emerged from a fight to the death almost unscathed, the most implausible component of the Army's case against MacDonald was their theory of the motive for the murders. MacDonald's youngest daughter, Kristen, had wet his side of the bed while sleeping next to Colette. How could this possibly have led to a triple homicide? The theory went that MacDonald and Colette's marriage, despite appearances, was in fact troubled probably because of Jeffrey's extramarital philandering, which investigators had first learned of while inspecting the crime scene, where they discovered a mildly salacious valentine to MacDonald from the wife of one of his commanding officers, who was then in Vietnam. Further investigation turned up more affairs. Colette, army prosecutors surmised, had gotten wind of these dalliances, and marital tension had resulted. So the bedwetting was merely the trigger for an explosive argument between husband and wife, somewhere in the middle of which MacDonald had lost control, seized a club, struck Colette in the head, and, either at that point or shortly thereafter, passed the point of no return. With Colette either dead or dying, MacDonald was left with two choices, turn himself in or murder the witnesses, his own daughters, and concoct a cover story to tell the authorities. For Rock, Beale, and others, this theory coupled with the Army's paltry physical evidence, fell far short of warranting a court-martial of Jeffrey MacDonald, who was thus cleared and honorably discharged from the Army. Having endured this ordeal, MacDonald soured entirely on military life. He soon moved as far from North Carolina as he could. In 1971, MacDonald relocated to sunny Southern California, where he took a job as an emergency surgeon at Long Beach's St. Mary's Hospital, before long, he promoted up to head of emergency medicine. MacDonald had always been resilient, and despite the almost unthinkable tragedy he had left behind in North Carolina, he appeared to have turned over a new leaf on the West Coast. But even as he rebuilt his life and career out West, 
A storm was brewing on the opposite side of the country that would ultimately call him back and engulf him. Among MacDonald's most vigorous defenders during the Article 32 hearing had been his in-laws, Mildred and Freddie Kassab. Freddie, in particular, had been a vociferously outspoken critic of the Army's investigation and was deeply offended at the suggestion that his son-in-law, Jeffrey, would have slaughtered Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen. Famously, Freddie stated during the Article 32 hearing that if he had another daughter, he would still want the same son-in-law. He was thus immensely relieved when Colonel Rock cleared MacDonald, but in succeeding months, both he and Mildred, still reeling from the loss of their daughter and grandchildren, began to grow uneasy, and before long, their confidence in MacDonald's innocence faltered. One common misunderstanding is that Freddie's epiphany that MacDonald was, in reality, a superficially charming but ruthlessly narcissistic sociopath occurred one night while watching television. It was mid-December, 1970, less than a year after the murders. The program was The Late Show, hosted by Dick Cavett, one of whose guests that night was none other than Dr. Jeffrey MacDonald, whose supposed purpose in going on the show was to publicize the case and thus force the government to reopen it. Even granting that pretext, there is no historical reconstruction of early 1970s television that can dispel the fundamental weirdness of McDonald's appearing on Cavett's show. The entire scenario was odd and probably anomalous. And yet, having acknowledged that, we must also acknowledge that McDonald was bound to come off as... off. The scene itself was bizarre. How does one act? How should one act in a fundamentally strange setting? What is the socially acceptable way to behave in a situation that is socially unprecedented? For this reason, for me, McDonald's behavior during the interview with Cavett was, indeed, off, but so was Cavett's. What in the world was Cavett doing having McDonald on his show to talk about the murder of his wife and children only months earlier? Who let this happen? Regardless, Freddie Kassab was less interested in Cavett than he was in McDonald and what he saw infuriated him. McDonald's manner was casual. He appeared to be enjoying himself. Granted, had he been tearful and tortured, the scene would have been all the more surreal for the late show. Nevertheless, it was stomach-turning to see someone so composed and cheerful when his dead wife and daughters had only recently been buried. Perhaps the most unsettling moment came when Cavett asked McDonald about the night of the murders, and the doctor set the stage by saying that he and Colette had been sipping a liqueur and watching, and here he gave Cavett a significant look, a certain late-night television show. McDonald was referring to Johnny Carson, Cavett's late-night competition. That is, he was getting a cheap laugh from Cavett and the crowd just before launching into his tale of the intoxicated maniacs that had recently butchered his family and attempted to murder him. It seemed incongruous, to say the least. For his part, Freddy was dumbstruck. Where was the pain? Where was the emphasis on Colette, Kimmy, and Kristen? All MacDonald seemed interested in was charming the stars of late-night TV and whinging about the Army's unfair treatment of him. But while Kassab was extremely irritated by MacDonald's behavior on The Dick Cavett Show, he did not, at this point, conclude that MacDonald was a murderer. 
and he continued his public relations campaign to have the case reopened so as to locate the real killers and hold the army to account for its original mishandling of the case. He was ultimately successful, as the army did reopen the case in January of 1971. It was this, ironically, that started Kassab down the path to concluding that MacDonald was the killer. In February 1971, the Kassabs elected to begin cooperating with, rather than stonewalling, the Army's Criminal Investigation Division, although they continued to insist on MacDonald's innocence. As Freddie recalled it in an unpublished manuscript, the watershed moment came in March 1971, when the CID permitted him to enter the apartment at 544 Castle Drive. Kassab had, by then, scored another significant victory against the Army. Not only had he forced them to reopen the case, but he had induced them to finally give him the 2,200-page transcript of the Article 32 hearings, which he claimed subsequently to have read at least 20 times. He was especially preoccupied with McDonald's testimony regarding the night of the murders, which he said he perused over 100 times. Having surely become the world's leading expert on McDonald's Article 32 testimony, Kassab was particularly well positioned to scrutinize the condition of 544 Castle Drive in light of that testimony. And, as he would later state, nothing fit. That is, McDonald's story, as the original army investigators had concluded, simply could not be reconciled with the condition of the apartment. In fact, Kassab's memory, as related in his manuscript, was slightly inaccurate. The record of his subsequent interactions with investigators suggests that his conviction regarding McDonald's guilt lay a little further in the future. But I find this understandable and human. We all tidy up our memories in this way. What is more significant is Kassab's general experience of undergoing a deep transformation of worldview. He had clearly been living in a reality wherein the world's greatest son-in-law was his own and where that noble man had had his life destroyed by the darkest forces of the counterculture, and then his reputation ruined by a corrupt establishment. And he then found himself, as one does, in a completely different reality, wherein his son-in-law was a masterful narcissist, as ruthless as he was charming. For those who undergo such an experience, it is common to retrospectively anoint some dramatic moment as the turning point, the single second in which everything changed. But this is more often than not inaccurate. Telling the true, less dramatic story, however, even to oneself, is, well, less dramatic and makes for a much less compelling narrative. There is another common feature of worldview shifts, particularly those that turn on one's perception of an individual, a romantic partner or close friend most especially. And Freddie experienced this too. He slowly realized that McDonald was not the person he appeared to be. And as this realization dawned on Freddie, details in the history of his relationship with McDonald that had previously seemed anomalous or of marginal significance suddenly emerged as characteristic and of central significance. For example, in November 1970, about a month before his appearance on Dick Cavett, McDonald had placed a call to Kassab, which, to McDonald's eventual chagrin, Kassab recorded. McDonald told his father-in-law that he and a few of his fellow Green Berets had recently trawled Fayetteville on a mission to locate the murderers and had gotten lucky. They had, McDonald claimed, tracked down one of the February 17 intruders, 
beaten him until he confessed to his involvement, and then killed and buried him. Kassab would ultimately reach the obvious conclusion that MacDonald was lying. Perhaps, he thought, MacDonald was compensating for a deep sense of inadequacy brought on by the fact that he had failed to protect his family. Just as when MacDonald had told Dick Cavett that he'd suffered 23 stab wounds, a number he'd pulled out of thin air, he had perhaps been exaggerating out of a sense of grievance against a military that had refused to take his suffering seriously. But now, in retrospect, such lies seemed the furthest thing from innocent. As the late crime writer Michelle McNamara would, decades later, ask, what man whose family has been slaughtered tells the person most determined to catch the culprits a lie that, if believed, may dissuade him from continuing his pursuit? There were other lies. Freddie learned, for example, that MacDonald, while being held at Fort Bragg during the Article 32 hearing, had taken up with yet another woman. Mere months after the utter destruction of his supposedly one true love, their two young daughters, and their unborn son. When Freddie confronted him about the affair, MacDonald indignantly denied it. But Freddie had already confirmed all the details, including the identity of the woman, a civilian employee at Fort Bragg named Bonnie Wood, who had admitted to the relationship. There MacDonald was, lying, again, a new, hitherto unthinkable picture was materializing. And while in McGuinness's cinematic telling, this picture suddenly lit up the screen of Freddie's mind the moment he exited 544 Castle Drive that night in March 1971, in reality, it flickered on, falteringly, over an indeterminate period. A seemingly random array of behavioral anomalies now emerged as an ordered constellation. When Freddie reluctantly connected the dots, the arrow they formed pointed directly at Jeffrey MacDonald. The precise moment when Freddy apprehended this constellation remains a mystery. Indeed, there may not have been such a singular moment. What is certain is that by June 1972, when the Army completed its 3,000-page report on the reinvestigation of the murders, Freddy and the CID investigators were agreed. Four intruders had not murdered Colette, Kristen, and Kimberly. Jeffrey had. At that point, Freddie began a campaign, both a bureaucratic and a public relations one, to induce the Justice Department to reopen the case against MacDonald. His efforts were unrelenting, and he eventually broke through. In April 1974, the Kassabs filed a probable cause complaint against MacDonald in the chambers of the chief judge for the Eastern District of North Carolina. That summer, a grand jury was impaneled to hear the evidence against MacDonald, and on August 12th, the court heard its first witness, Dr. Jeffrey MacDonald, who would continue testifying over the next few days. After laying out the cause for the grand jury's convening, parrying with Bernie Siegel, whom MacDonald had kept on as his attorney, and who was not actually present in the courtroom in keeping with the conventions of a grand jury, and covering a range of preliminary and background issues, the Justice Department's Victor Warheide came to the critical matters. He questioned MacDonald at length about the call he had made to Freddy Kassab in November 1970, wherein he'd claimed to have hunted down and killed one of the intruders. Warheide also quoted from letters MacDonald had subsequently written Kassab, in which he went on further flights of fancy claiming to have made four trips to North Carolina to locate the killers, and to have broken his hand during one of them. 
McDonald told War Heidi that the lies he fed Kassab were foolish, but that his motivation for telling them was to get Freddy, an alcoholic fanatic, off his back. As for Mildred, McDonald characterized her as a woman possessed by bloodlust, to the point that, upon learning of McDonald's supposed slaying of an intruder, she repeatedly insisted on hearing the gruesome details of the event, wanting to know if the victim had screamed in agony, and so forth. Warheide's manner was measured, almost polite, but his purpose was clear. He wanted to establish that MacDonald was a man capable of telling lies. Big lies. He was willing to manipulate and mislead people, including people quite close to him, if it meant achieving his ends. There was no denying that Warheide met this objective. Eventually, he came to the heart of the matter, the night of February 16th and 17th, 1970. War Heidi. Dr. McDonald, going back to some time before February 16th, will you recount the events as you recall them that culminated with the assault upon you on the night of February 16th and February 17th? McDonald, after offering up a chronology of the day prior to the murders, including a reiteration of his time at work, having dinner with Colette on the evening of the 16th, her leaving for her child psychology class at the University of North Carolina Extension, his watching Laugh-In with Kimberly, and other mundane details, came to the core claim, the intruders. His story more or less echoed the one he'd told Army investigators back in April 1970, but this time, McDonald folded a critique of the investigators into his telling, a rather powerful critique, in fact. McDonald. And the next, you know... There was some lights on in the house. There was a light on in the kitchen and there was a light on in the main bathroom, which was in the hallway, which was, you know, between the two girls' rooms. And the light was left on because infrequently Christy would get up and go looking for her own bottle in the refrigerator. So we usually left one in the refrigerator. So the next thing I remember was I heard my wife screaming and she said, help Jeff. And at the same time I heard Christy Kimberly. I'm sorry, it wasn't Christy, it was Kimberly. She was screaming, Daddy. Colette said, help Jeff, why are they doing this to me? And it sounded very loud to me. Still sounds loud. Kimberly said, Daddy, 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 help. And I started to sit up and there were some people, there was some people at the end of the couch the CID said was never in my house. And they couldn't find any evidence that people had been in my house. They couldn't find any evidence of 14 investigators and three medics and the CID and MPs and doctors, and because they couldn't find evidence for these people, I'm guilty. McDonald was also concerned to correct the record, which he believed the original investigators had distorted in a manner that made his claims seem more ridiculous than they really were. I never said I saw hippies. I never said that. Colonel Krawanek said I saw hippies. I said I saw people. I saw a person with long blonde hair and a floppy hat on, and there was a light on her. And I never said I saw candles either. It was a light on her face, and I had the impression that there was something, I don't know if it was because it was kind of, you know, wavering thing of an intermittent light or something, but I still think it was like candlelight, you know? It was an impression. It was in the midst of a dark room and over a period of 10 to 20 to 30 seconds, and I never really saw her. I saw hair. I saw a face outline and a hat, and that was it. That was all I saw. And while this was happening, Colette was screaming and Kimberly was screaming, Daddy, this guy hit me with something I thought was a baseball bat. He continued a bit later. 
I was listening to the screams and I was getting hit at the same time and I was looking at these people who were in my house. The CID can't even fingerprint a phone that an MP has used and get his fingerprints. And they tell me that they have no evidence of these people. And that's why I'm here today. That's why. It's the most preposterous. They, they had no evidence that Ron Harrison was in my house. They had no evidence that Captain Probst was in my house. No evidence that my mother was in my house. No evidence that the Kassabs were there. No evidence my brother was there. No evidence that anyone I ever knew was in my house except me. So I'm guilty. That's crazy. It's like something out of a bad TV show. As War Heidi continued quizzing McDonald on the details of the attack, a theme emerged. War Heidi wanted the most detailed description of the intruders and the assault that McDonald could conjure, and McDonald apparently did his best to provide such a description, all the while qualifying his attempts with the quite plausible observation that the incident was a whirl of darkness and disorientation. Recalling what happened, even at the time, much less four years later, was a challenge. One such point of confusion was McDonald's memory of hearing Colette and Kimberly's voices crying out from the bedrooms just as he was registering the presence of four figures looming over him in the living room. McDonald had relayed the same thing to the original Army investigators in their interview with him in April 1970, and it stated plainly that he was confused by this memory, since it suggested that there were more than four intruders in the apartment. That's a lot of people one of the interrogators had remarked at the time, and MacDonald agreed, the obvious implication being that five or six individuals partaking in such a horrendous slaughter was, well, asking a lot of the listener. One or two maniacs, maybe, but six? MacDonald did not correct this detail or try to explain it away when speaking to Warheidi. Warheidi. You had one brief glimpse of her. I... And you heard her intoning certain words. Right. Now, acid is... Groovy. Groovy? Kill the pigs. Kill the pigs. How, how many times did you hear her say that? Several, it seemed to me. And while this was going on, you continued to hear Colette and Kimberly. I don't know. What I really heard was what I told you before. I heard, <clears throat> help, help, Jeff. Help, help, Jeff, help me. Why are they doing this to me? And I heard Kimberly, and, and I honestly don't know how long I heard that. Well, at least in the early part of the struggle, you heard it. Right. When I saw, when I saw the three and probably four people, I still heard that. That's correct. If the listener were to flip to the relevant pages in their copy of Fatal Vision, they would notice that Joe McGinnis relays all of these details and more, often verbatim, in his telling of Warheide's tete-a-tete with MacDonald before the grand jury. And it wouldn't take much insight to also notice that McGinnis casts Warheide as the patient and practiced prosecutor, and MacDonald as Warheide's overconfident yet ill-prepared quarry. By the time McGinnis comes to this episode, the reader is already aware that MacDonald is guilty, and that supposed fact imbues MacDonald's responses to War Heidi with their emotional significance. Arrogance, self-pity, indignation that is anything but righteous, however much MacDonald strained to create the opposite impression. By contrast, while acknowledging that War Heidi succeeded in establishing McDonald's dishonesty, I have selected bits of McDonald's testimony that entail critiques of his persecutors. 
critiques that McGinnis insinuates were so much rubbish, but that in fact deserve to be taken seriously, as I will now demonstrate. Let's start with McDonald's claim that the CID couldn't find any evidence that people had been in his house, or that 14 investigators and three medics and the CID and MPs and doctors had been in his house. What did he mean by this? Recall that an unknown number of individuals, possibly as many as 20, including civilians, were moving, unchecked, in and out of the McDonald home after military police first entered it on the morning of February 17, 1970. This situation persisted for 15 long minutes before investigators finally sealed the crime scene, by which time there should have been no shortage of evidence of outside individuals having been in the apartment. The problem would have been to disaggregate the grass, water, mud, and other debris carried into the apartment by MPs, medics, and civilians from the grass, water, mud, and other debris carried in by the intruders who, according to McDonald, had preceded them. And when it came to hair and fingerprint evidence, as McDonald rightly protested, the CID had been unable to forensically establish the presence of friends and relatives of McDonald's who no one denied had been inside the apartment in the weeks before the murders. How, then, could anyone regard it as incriminating that the same investigators found no evidence of intruders? Another feature of McDonald's critique of the military's case is worth underscoring. He denied that he had claimed a gang of hippies had attacked him. That, as you will recall from our first episode, was the sticking point in McDonald's story for many people. It seemed all too convenient that six months after the Manson family's slaughter of Sharon Tate and the LaBiancas out in Los Angeles, McDonald claimed that drug-crazed hippies had slaughtered his family in a similar fashion, right down to their writing the word pig in blood. Add to that prima facie implausibility the fact that McDonald just so happened to have a copy of Esquire in his home, which focused on the Mansons and was littered with jargon like acid, groovy, and the like, and it seemed fairly obvious that McDonald's tale was a hastily concocted cover story, not an honest recollection. But this was all wrong, protested McDonald. He had never said drug-crazed hippies attacked him. He described his attackers as three males with short hair, one of whom wore an army jacket, and a woman holding a light of some sort. If there was a hippie among the four, it was the woman, but the other three were relatively clean-cut. This didn't sound like the Mansons, but it did sound like the kind of people one found in Fayetteville, disillusioned, drug-addicted soldiers recently returned from Vietnam who often disappeared into the local counterculture. That is, it sounded relatively plausible, which is why, notwithstanding the military investigators, people in the area, and especially those on base at Fort Bragg, assumed the story was true and began locking their doors and stocking up on ammunition. As McDonald's friend Michael Malley would recount years later, there were bizarre, frightening, drug-centered cults in Fayetteville at the time. People in the area found McDonald's story horrifying precisely because they found it plausible. Finally, McDonald's odd claim that he heard the voices of his wife and daughter at the same moment he registered the presence of strange people in his living room. Why, if you are making up a story, say something like this? Why compound the implausibility of your tale by suggesting that even more psychotic intruders were in your home that morning? Why not, if you're fabricating the story whole cloth, claim that you heard your wife and daughter's screams, bolted up in bed, 
and then saw a gang of intruders emerging from the hallway and entering into the living room. One reason might be that McDonald simply did not have the time to carefully construct his story. He slaughtered his family in a fit of rage, and then, in a white-knuckled panic, sketched out a basic story and resolved to stick to it when investigators started asking questions. Another reason, however, might be that McDonald was telling the truth. In that case, he may have registered Colette and Kimmy's screams while in a state of consciousness straddling the border of deep sleep and incipient wakefulness. The screaming may have seemed, initially, like a dream, and MacDonald may have only slowly registered the significance of the sounds, playing them over in his mind as he staggered into full consciousness and, simultaneously, noticed the bodies standing over him. That is, the voices may have been echoing in his mind as he awoke, in which case it may have seemed to him, in retrospect, that he was hearing the voices at the same moment that he was noticing the intruders, even though there had, in fact, been a delay between the two events. In that case, McDonald's recollection would be phenomenologically, that is, subjectively, accurate, even though it was factually inaccurate. But does a man making up a story get the facts, as it were, mixed up, and the subjective experience right? Not unless he is particularly cunning. After all, there is no subjective experience for such an individual. He's lying. It didn't really happen. There is only the story he is selling, which it behooves him to get right, lest anyone catch him in an error. Was MacDonald mixed up precisely because he was telling the truth? And the truth, in such a chaotic situation, is mixed up? These are questions Joe McGinnis never asks, but we must. In our next episode, we will delve further into McDonald's testimony before the grand jury, McGinnis's use of that testimony to seal McDonald into the role of the hopeless liar, and the need for a fresh look at the hearing and its aftermath in order to answer the question, did Jeffrey McDonald murder his family? Did he? That's next time on The Looking Glass. <laughs>